Well, the Christmas season is upon us, a holiday that's filled with all kinds of family traditions, beliefs, customs, and practices passed on, in some cases, for generations. Uh, What are some of your family Christmas traditions? Do you have a Christmas tree, or is it stockings, or is it both? Does your family have a Santa Claus tradition? Do you open presents and just generally celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve or on December 25th? What sort of food do you eat over the holiday? Is is there a traditional piece de resistance that mom bakes each year? Does your Norman Rockwell family hitch up the horses and go sleighing through town singing Christmas carols? At some point, Does your family sit down and read the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke? What sort of festive decorations brighten up your home over the holidays? All of these traditions are part of what makes the holiday of Christmas Christmas. And those are all good things, or at least they're all morally neutral. There are bad Christian or bad Christmas traditions too, of course, like getting drunk and flying around on your snowmobile at top speed at two in the morning which is a beloved pastime of people back in my hometown. Uh, But the, the Bible, though, it also speaks of tradition or traditions, and it uses the term in both a positive and in a negative sense. The word tradition simply refers to what's handed on. And if what's handed on is the teaching of the New Testament apostles, then the Bible calls traditions a good thing. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in, in, to Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11.2. He writes, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions, just as I pass them on to you. However, if what's handed on conflicts with what God has disclosed in the Bible and Scripture, then those traditions are unhelpful. They're dangerous. Uh, we see again and again in the New Testament, traditions are praised or they're criticized by their conformity to or departure from God's authoritative word. That's the standard, which is precisely the issue that Jesus confronts in Mark chapter 7, our text today. The human traditions of the religious leaders of Israel, they are at variance, they conflict with Scripture itself. Beloved, this chapter, Mark 7, it shows us the awesome authority of Jesus Christ. Remember, Mark is always pushing two questions on his readers. Who is Jesus and what does discipleship to Jesus look like? How should we be responding to Jesus? Today, we learn that Jesus is the only one with the authority. That's a dirty word in our culture today, but he has the authority to declare to all people what is pleasing to God. Not our hallowed traditions, not our culture, not our sincerely held religious beliefs. And Jesus can do, he can do in practice what the Jewish religious leaders did by their bad traditions. He can legitimately abrogate, abolish, and annul parts of the Old Testament law. In fact, Jesus fulfills the whole law covenant not just one piece over here or one subset of teachings over here. And that is staggering authority.
That's a prerogative of God alone. In contrast to the traditions of people and even the law of Moses, Jesus is the true revealer of God. Moreover, in Mark 7, Jesus exposes our sinful hearts. Not just our sinful actions, our sinful hearts. It's what's inside us that defiles us in God's sight, all of us. We do rotten things and disobey God and we hurt other people because we're all spiritually rotten on the inside. Today's text is an indictment against any sort of spiritual triumphalism that says, at heart, I'm a good person. Jesus says, no, you're not. Don't delude yourself. Your heart is defiled, your very heart. And it produces defiled works, which means you are defiled. And Jesus says, you need me to purify you. Let's look at our first point together. Verses 1 to 13 of Mark 7. The traditions... Jesus condemns are those that allow people to sidestep what Holy Scripture authoritatively teaches. The account begins with Jesus and his disciples being opposed by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who have come down from Jerusalem. Uh, Bear in mind, these men are the religious elite in the nation of Israel. Uh, They're the nation's spiritual leaders, which is ironic because the last time we came across these men in chapter 3, they were plotting Jesus' murder for healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, as well as accusing Jesus, who is the anointed one, of being possessed by Satan. So now we come across these same people again. Verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Folks, washing your hands before a meal, that is a, that is a good habit to cultivate. Uh, it promotes good hygiene. However, what has the Pharisees upset has nothing to do with good hygiene. According to the Old Testament law, according to the law of Moses, Jewish priests from the tribe of Levi were required by God to wash themselves before entering into the tabernacle or the temple to perform religious services. God was very concerned. We've seen this multiple times now in Mark's Gospel, but he was very concerned in the Old Covenant with ritual purity and and ceremonial defilement. God didn't want his earthly home, his tabernacle, contaminated. His holiness would not abide it. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read for us Exodus 30, 17 to 21. This is the Old Testament text to consider. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron, the high priest, and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to Yahweh, they shall wash their hands and feet so they will not die. 
This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. But apart from that, the washing of hands, but that's the point of contention in verse 2, is prescribed only if someone comes into contact with a defiling bodily discharge, like we read of in Leviticus 13, or they come into contact with a corpse or a dead body. However, the way that this worked out, this commandment worked out in Israel's history, is that after the Babylonian exile in 587 BC, a lot of legalism crept into Judaism. The religious leaders began to erect specific, very specific requirements of conduct beyond the teaching of Scripture. And they made adherence to those requirements the means, the very means by which a person qualified for full participation in the covenant community of God. And so after the exile, with with Jews being scattered all over the Gentile world, Ritual cleanliness took on a new sort of significance as a way of maintaining Jewish purity, Jewish purity over against Gentile culture. Ritual cleanliness became an ethnic identity marker, became a badge of holiness, but it it wasn't scriptural, right? It was a man-made tradition. You're not going to find that kind of stuff in the Bible. And besides, as Jesus will point out later, outward cleanliness has nothing to do with inward cleanliness. Holiness is a matter of the heart, not ritual washings, nor any other external religious observance. Baptism won't save you. I say that in a Baptist church. Baptism will not save your soul. The Mass won't save you. And making a pilgrimage to Mecca won't do a thing. Verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews. So it's not just the Pharisees. It's just deep into the culture. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus... Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? But who says their hands are defiled? Not God. The Old Testament doesn't say it's defiled. The disciples haven't been handling corpses or touching bodily discharges. They're they're not Levites serving in the temple. It's only the tradition of the elders that say their hands are defiled. And, And that... Elder tradition, this is so important, that elder tradition is based on their ever-evolving oral law, what's called the Mishnah. And by Jesus' day, adherence to the unwritten Mishnah, the oral law, was almost as important for the Pharisees as adherence to the Bible itself. It is essential we understand this background I need to spend some time on this. Rabbis at this time period actually promoted the idea that Moses had received two laws on Mount Sinai. The written Torah and the oral Mishnah. The rabbis had an expression. It was called putting a fence around Torah, around the law of Moses. 
And that's what the oral law was to their thinking. It was a fence. The rabbis would say, we need to be very, very careful that we don't violate the law of Moses. We don't want to be doing that. So if we create extra laws to protect the law itself, and if we obey then those extra laws, then we won't even come close to disobeying God. It's sort of like putting an electric fence that you can't touch around an electric fence that you can't touch. But the problem with that is that it's completely legalistic. Look at your handout. I give a definition of legalism. This is from Sam Storms. The tendency to regard as divine law things which God has neither required nor forbidden in Scripture. And the corresponding inclination to look with suspicion and or judgmentalism on others for their failure or their refusal to conform. Now, if you want to become a legalist, and you shouldn't, but here's how you would become a legalist, all right? Make rules outside the Bible. Push yourself to try to keep those rules that you've made up. Castigate or reprimand yourself when you don't keep those rules. Become proud when you do keep those rules. And appoint yourself judge over other Christians. Get angry with Christians who break your rules. Or who have different rules. Ah, okay, now, now we're getting down to the nub of the matter. Old Covenant Israel was supposed to live according to God's laws, not man-made laws. For instance, the, the very good, divine Old Testament command, do no work on the Sabbath day. That was from God. But the religious leaders broke down that biblical command into 39 categories of prohibited work, including silly prohibitions against plucking out gray hairs on the Sabbath. That's nowhere in Scripture. It's just a man-made silly rule. And they did that because Torah, the law, was understood as policy, the big, the big policy. It, its commandments declared what God decreed, but not always how it was supposed to be fulfilled. The elders argued that Torah alone was too ambiguous. They argued this. It was too ambiguous to establish and govern the Jewish community. But the oral tradition, as preserved in the Mishnah, ah, okay, that prescribed in infinite detail how the intent of the law ought to be fulfilled in day-to-day life. And so the two became inseparable. Written law and oral law. Authoritative scripture and human tradition. And Jesus, who is God in the flesh, comes down like a ton of bricks on that garbage. Scripture's divine uniqueness is compromised when human rules, human traditions, human speculations are placed on equal footing with God's unique revelation. Look at verse 6. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, this is very sarcastic. 
You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe, or a better reading, to set up your own traditions. Man, that is, that is some scathing stuff. Jesus calls these religious leaders of Israel hypocrites. They're religious worshipers who act or play out a role without sincerity. They wear a religious mask like an actor on a stage. They worship God in vain. I mean, that should be putting fear into anybody's heart who's hearing this from God in the flesh. You worship God in vain. Sure, the externals, they may all be there, but their hearts are evil. The religious elite of Jerusalem. How is this possible? How has it come to this? Because they've set aside the commands of God in order to set up their own traditions. Think of it like this. Imagine someone is brought up on charges before a court of law and the prosecuting attorney, he's making some point or other connected with the crime and he's waving around a copy of the Constitution. And then the accused spits on the Constitution and then spits on the judge. What do those actions plainly tell us? The accused is an anarchist. That person has no respect for the court or the laws of the land. And the same thing applies here. For a human being to have the audacity to set up their own belief structure and erect their own religious traditions over against God's revelation, to worship God in a way that is not Christ-centered, empowered by the Spirit, in line with the stipulations of the new covenant, that is high-handed rebellion against their creator God. It's nothing less than idolatrous anarchy. And to do so while wearing the mask of a religious person or a spiritual person or a Christian is the worst kind of hypocrisy. Jesus' quote from Isaiah 29:13 rightly defines a hypocrite as one who voices lofty and even noble sentiments divorced from the intentions of their heart. Such people, Jesus says, worship God in vain. They've replaced the divine with merely human. The Pharisees, they substitute interpretations of God's divine law for the law itself. Indeed, they substitute interpretations which are at variance with the very intent of God's law. Look at the example our Lord gives. It just reeks of self-serving religious hypocrisy. Verse 10. For Moses said, so this is, this is divine revelation. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother will be put to death under the theocracy that was old covenant Israel. Verse 11. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Korban was a dedication formula commonly used by Jews. Its basic purpose was to place a ban on something, reserving it for sacred use only. 
and withdrawing it from profane use by another person. And in the example that Jesus gives, a person, literally, it's a, it's a son, he declares his property, korban, uh, to his parents, thus legally excluding them from the right of its benefit. This property I have, mom, dad, you're not going to see any of this. This can't help you in any way. This is dedicated to God. But should then the son regret his action, that hasty vow, and in the future at some point, and then he seeks to alleviate that harsh vow, the scribes, the religious leaders, would tell him, no, your vow can't be revoked. It must be honored. You cannot renege. The scribes wouldn't allow the son to do anything for his parents because they had erected this man-made tradition, which was at variance with the divine command to honor one's father and mother. But did you notice Jesus isn't tearing into the son who made this vow. He's tearing into the religious leaders. Look at all the second person plural pronouns in verses 12 to 13. He says, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. And loved ones, this principle, it still applies to us today. The authority of the Bible over human lives never changes. God has spoken. God has revealed himself. God has spoken. And it doesn't matter how sincere we are or how helpful or how tolerant or time-honored our religious tradition may be or how many billions of people follow in the path of that tradition. If it's at variance with God's gracious self-disclosure in the 66 books of canonical scripture, it is sin. It is wrong. And if we go ahead and we do it anyway, regardless, yet say that we worship God, Jesus, who is God, tells us, no, you're a hypocrite. You worship God in vain. You're an idolater. You nullify the word of God. The traditions Jesus condemns are those that allow people to sidestep what the Holy Scripture authoritatively teaches. Which means we all, all of us, we need to examine our life and see if there is any way in which we live or even think that's at variance with God's Holy Word. Have we erected any religious traditions or belief structures in our own heart that we know contradicts the teachings of Scripture. Tear them down. Eradicate them. When we read something like the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus commands things that we feel are utterly unrealistic to practice in the real world, and frankly, would make life miserable if we obeyed. Things like, love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Honor your mother and your father. Forgive those who have sinned against you. Do we then reject God's word? Do we sidestep those divine commands all the while wearing our religious Christian mask? God forbid. This leads to our second point and is connected to the first. Number two, in contrast 
to the traditions of men and even the law of Moses, Jesus is the ultimate revealer of God. Jesus is the ultimate revealer of God. One day during my time at Toronto Baptist Seminary, I had a summer job working on a construction crew uh, pouring concrete into basements, driveways, and garages. This was all very hard, labor-intensive work, but the job I hated most was leveling basements. Two of us would arrive at a half-constructed house, we would jump into the basement, and then start shoveling and raking out a mountain of gravel that had been dumped there by a dump truck. Uh, it, it had, the worst part was, too, it had to be perfectly level across the whole floor. And you, you couldn't be out so much as one inch. <laughs> it took hours. It was mind-numbing, but there was also plenty of time for talk. And, and one of the guys in my crew was in his last year of high school. He wanted to be a medical doctor, and he was intrigued that I was studying to be a pastor. Uh, his parents were Christians who uh, forced him to go to church. Those are his words. Uh, but he was skeptical that the Bible truly was the authoritative, culture-transcending Word of God. Uh, and, and one day, as we were shoveling gravel, I asked him what his biggest hang-up was with the authority of the Bible. And his answer has been unique in my 25 years of evangelizing. His objection was very particular. He had no concerns with what the Bible taught about sex or marriage, or morality, or even the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. His hang-up was that God changed his mind between the two testaments about food laws. That was it. One day, God says that it's sin to eat bacon. The next day, it's perfectly fine. But surely, the one true God wouldn't... capriciously do such a thing, say such a thing. So to his thinking, the abolition of the Old Testament food laws was an inconsistency which proved, it proved that the Bible wasn't of divine origin. So how would you have responded as you're raking out a mountain of gravel for the next two hours? Uh, I'll, I'll be the first to admit the food laws in Leviticus 11, uh, I, they can be shown up here what they are, Um, But those food laws are very difficult to understand. The animals listed as clean and unclean, they seem completely arbitrary to our modern perspective. Uh, The animal is clean. This animal is clean and it may be eaten. This one is not and must never be eaten or you will be defiled. Friend, if you're aware of what criteria God is following in the Old Covenant to declare a sheep clean and a cat unclean, Let me know, because I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. Uh, But this I do know. This is essential. The New Testament regards the food laws as symbolic of the division between Jews and Gentiles. The Old Covenant food laws express an understanding of Israel's special status as the elect, holy people of God. And the division into clean, edible foods... And unclean, inedible foods corresponds to the division between holy Israel and the Gentile world. I mean, just, just know that one thing, and the Bible makes a whole lot more sense. You're reading all these kosher food laws. It corresponds to the division between holy Israel and the Gentile world. However, in our sermon text today, Jesus declares all food clean. 
Never mind Leviticus 11. Jesus declares all food clean. So pulled pork sandwiches for everybody. How is that possible? And why does that happen? Only now at this point in salvation history. It's for 1,500 years, pulled pork sandwiches were completely forbidden. It goes without saying, guys, this topic is massive. It's massive. This is really a whole Sunday school series onto itself, as well as an excellent case study, really, for how we put our Bibles together, kind of like Sabbath, same sort of thing. But let's just quickly, quickly look at another New Testament text that helps shed some light on this issue and make sense of what Jesus is saying as he declares all food clean. All right, so go to Acts chapter 10. This is the text that our sister Angela read for us earlier, the account of Peter and Cornelius. Here's the setup. A few years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Jewish apostle, Simon Peter, he comes to a Roman centurion's house. This is an uncircumcised Gentile's house. And he proclaims the gospel to him and his whole household. By God's grace, the uncircumcised Gentiles believe and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like the Jewish Christians did back on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Chapter 10, verse 45. Luke writes, The circumcised believers, so Jews, who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. I mean, you hear the discrimination. <laughs> For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, just as we Jews have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now notice what the apostle says. He doesn't say, as he's hearing them speak in tongues and praising God, he doesn't say, get these Gentiles circumcised. Which sounds preposterous to our ears, but this is the first time this has ever happened. Covenantal shattering inferences are coming to the fore for the first time. The penny is starting to drop. Peter doesn't say, get these Gentiles circumcised as the law of Moses demands. Instead, he says, get these Gentiles baptized as Jesus commands. Bring them into the covenant community of the church as full-fledged members. Because God's new covenant community, the Church of Jesus Christ, is not some exclusive ethnic club. But just before this marvelous work takes place, before Cornelius' messengers arrive in Joppa, where Peter is staying, the apostle has a vision of unclean animals being lowered in a sheet from heaven. Animals, the law of Moses, prohibits any Jew from eating. Even so, God tells Peter to kill those unclean animals and eat them. Which appears to Peter to be in direct violation of Leviticus 11. Verse 14, Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. But later on, how does Peter interpret this vision? And this is everything. He tells Cornelius in chapter 10, verse 28, You are well aware that it is against our law, that is, the oral law, the Mishnah, for a Jew to associate with Gentiles or visit them. But God 
has shown me, that is, through this vision of the unclean animals, God has shown me that I should not call anyone, any person, impure or unclean. So, when I was sent for, I came to your Gentile house without raising any objection. 1034. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And that, of course, was always the biblical teaching. But now Peter sees this truth more sharply and more clearly as it's being demonstrated to him now in a new way. Yes, though Yahweh gave a special status and role to Israel, he also declared his intention to bless all the nations of the world through his chosen people, didn't he? Do you recall what God's call to Abram in Genesis 12, 3? He said he promises, he, he says, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Because Jesus comes through Abraham's line. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And Peter sees this clearly now for the first time. There is no racial barrier to God's salvation. Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. All right, back to Mark chapter 7, verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside you can defile you by going into you. Rather, it is what comes out of you that defiles you. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters you from the outside can defile you? For it doesn't go into your heart but into your stomach, and then out of your body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Bam! Beloved, what we see here in verse 19b, this is revelatory progression in contrast to the traditions of men and even the law covenant of Moses itself. Jesus is the ultimate, ultimate revealer of God. Jesus has the final authoritative word, not the tradition of the religious leaders, not the Ten Commandments, not the teachings of Moses, and the stipulations of the Old Covenant law. King Jesus' authority transcends them all. And if we're reading this like a first century Jew, which is how we should be reading this, it needs to stop us just dead in our tracks. Who is this man, Jesus, to say such things? Nothing that enters you from the outside can defile you. Let let me tell you how that would sound to a first century Jew. This would sound like someone coming to you, Christian, and saying, you've heard God's command about observing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper? You don't have to do that anymore. What that ordinance is truly about is something other than you thought. Scandalous. Nothing that enters you from the outside can defile you. But Jesus has the authority to say such a thing because it's his law. Jesus is God. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. 
All the Old Testament laws have their valid continuity in him. Their proper end is in him, in his work, and in his person. In contrast to the traditions of men and even the law of Moses, Jesus is the ultimate revealer of God. So friend, if you've been sitting here week after week, listening to our Mark series, unimpressed with Jesus' power to cleanse lepers and heal the sick and calm storms and tread on the waves of the sea and exercise demons, then pray the Lord would place his holy fear in your dead, hard heart by revealing to you the authority of his divine son to terminate, abrogate, annul, and fulfill the old covenant law of Moses. This is yet another way of understanding who Jesus really is. Mark's doing this deliberately. And maybe you've never thought about Jesus from that sort of perspective, but you ought to. You must. Mark is deliberately setting this before you because you're not connecting the salvation historical dots. You're not connecting the progressive revelation. Covenant-shattering implications are passing you by. Let's zoom out from this a bit. This is, this is super important. All those detailed prescriptions in the Old Testament regarding food, clothing, clean and unclean, on and on and on, all those codes are profoundly divisive in a Jew-Gentile sense. The law covenant of Moses marked out the people of God by certain social markers. Jews dressed differently. Jews wore their hair differently. Jews observed a seven-day week when the Roman Empire worked on a ten-day week. Jews had a different religion. Jews had different dietary customs. The entire law covenant, whatever else its strengths, however much it was predicting the future, however much it was anticipating the Passover lamb, however much it looked to the ultimate day of atonement, It was also a covenant that kept the Jewish people of God separate from Gentiles. Which means all those holiness codes would strike the modern reader as as quaint and weird and arbitrary and hair-splitting. They were actually perpetual reminders of God's electing grace to the nation of Israel to the exclusion of the Gentile race, to the exclusion of the rest of the world. Which is why Jesus, in his death, set aside the old covenant with its Mosaic law and replaced it with a new covenant for all believers. One more New Testament passage to help us understand this before concluding with our third point. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. The Apostle Paul, in Ephesians 2, he's writing to Gentile Christians. And he says this, Therefore... Remember that formerly, that is, in time, in a previous era of salvation history, formerly, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. In other words, we Gentiles were derogatorily called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews. That's basically what Paul's saying. Remember that at that time, verse 12, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, 
foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, and without God in the world. Gentile Christian, know your past. Here it is, in all its hopelessness, in all of its sin, in all of its self-focus. We were without God and without hope in the world. Verse 13. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you, Gentiles, who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we Gentiles have been brought near by Jesus' sacrificial, vicarious, violent death on the cross. Jesus bore the wrath of God Gentiles deserve. Jesus bore Gentile sin in his own body on the tree, which presupposes that what fundamentally alienated Gentiles, what separated us, what kept us away from God, was that which deserved wrath. Wrath which only the death of Christ could propitiate. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility that is the law covenant itself. Did you know that? That's what it's saying to you, this, this hostility, this barrier, it's the law covenant itself. How? How did Jesus do this? By setting aside in his flesh, in his crucified flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. Now, that is grade A theological stake. That's another sermon series unto itself. But let me just say one thing more before moving to our concluding point. Brothers and sisters, even though this passage in Ephesians doesn't tell us to do anything, right? There's no commands here. Even so, God wants us to understand what it is that he's done for us. What he's done for Gentiles in particular in consequence of Jesus' death. Because we're not to be praising God out of just gushy, blind sentiment. We're to be praising God with all wisdom and understanding. We're to be worshiping God with our mind. God wants us to be connecting the salvation historical dots. God wants you to see the progressive revelation, the sweeping change by reading the storyline of the Bible properly. God wants his new covenant people to have insight and wisdom regarding his plan of salvation that he might receive glory and honor and praise from Gentiles, a people who formerly were without God and without hope in the world. All right, back to Mark 7, verse 17, in conclusion. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked, can't you? Don't you see that nothing that enters you from the outside can defile you? For it doesn't go into your heart, but into your stomach and then out of your body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of you is what defiles you. For from within, out of your hearts come evil thoughts. So stop right there. Have you ever had an evil thought. You know you have. Know that God demands perfection. Even our thought life must be perfect or else 
we violated God's holy standards. God never has bad thoughts. That's his standard, right? And we've all fallen short of that standard. So, you're not alone in your sin, friend, but you are in sin. And Jesus says the reason why we have evil thoughts is because our hearts are evil. Look at verse 21. For from within, out of your hearts, comes evil thoughts. Out of our hearts comes sexual immorality. Sexually speaking, I'm not as pure as the driven snow. I'm a sinner. Out of my heart comes sexual immorality. That means in Jesus' eyes, I'm defiled. I'm dirty. My heart is defiled, and so I do things and I think things that are sexually immoral. Our Lord goes on to say that out of our defiled heart comes theft. Have you ever taken something from someone or a store or from work that doesn't belong to you? Do you accept perhaps cash payments and then not declare your income to the government? You're a thief. You're not a thief because you steal. You're a thief already. Your heart is defiled. Therefore, you steal. Out of our hearts come murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile you. Man, it's, just, it's, it's like Jesus is writing my biography in these verses. That's me. Jesus is showing me that my sin is who I am at a very basic level. Jesus says our hearts are defiled and produce defiled works, which means we are defiled and we desperately need Jesus to clean us up. Friend, do you in fact see yourself as being defiled? That's a very important question. Not not just that you slip up from time to time and you do things that you're ashamed of, especially when you're provoked. I'm asking, do you see you, yourself, at the very core of your being as being hopelessly defiled, dirty, sinful, unclean? What Jesus says in these verses is hard medicine. No one appreciates being told that their heart is depraved and defiled and bad and evil. But if it's true, if if this is actually God's diagnosis of our spiritual condition, then we need to know it. In medicine, if you want to find a true, lasting cure for a disease then what's needed is more than just a superficial grasp of the disease itself. A superficial diagnosis leads to a false remedy. It never leads to a cure. If I have cancer, I want the disease diagnosed for what it truly is. And I want my doctor to know all about cancer. I want my doctor to be an expert on the disease. I want my doctor to tell me what I don't know about the disease, what the stakes are, what my chances are, the treatment I need, everything. Which means I need to be treated by an oncologist, right? Not a dentist. 
The person treating me must understand the seriousness of the disease and its symptoms. A person who, through misdiagnosis, would never make the mistake of prescribing just extra strength Tylenol to cover the pain I'm experiencing. When what I really need is an intensive regimen of chemotherapy. I need radiation. I need blood transfusions. I need surgery, not cod liver oil. Friends, here's God's diagnosis. The human heart, every human heart, is one giant, malignant, metastasizing tumor. And apart from the grace of God in the gospel, it always results in eternal divine wrath. It always results in hell. And the only cure is what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners. Everything else is a placebo. It's Tylenol. It's a Band-Aid. It will do you you no good. As John Piper notes, knowing the true condition of your heart will cause you to understand the mighty gospel and love it and cherish it and feast on it and share it as never before. And this is crucial because this is the way the gospel saves believers. If you don't understand the gospel, if you don't cherish it and look to it and feed on it day after day after day, it won't save you. But knowing all about your sinful heart and sin and God's wrath will help you do that. And my prayer is that all of us would escape a superficial diagnosis of sin. And so come back again and again to the necessity and the beauty and the freeness of the gospel of justification by faith alone. Because by God's grace, once we see our desperate condition, then by that same grace we turn our gaze away from our sinful selves and our human traditions, our sincerely held beliefs, whatever, and we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. It's only in Him that we find our hope. All those bad thoughts that churn in our bad hearts, which then rise to our bad actions in a display of autonomous defiance to our Creator God, all of it, all of it can be forgiven. Forgiven. But Jesus is the only gateway. That cleansing forgiveness that wipes away the defilement of our sin isn't something we could ever earn or merit. It is a gift freely given to us by God. But first, first we must repent of our sin and place our faith in Christ. So sinner, know this, hear this good news. Jesus is willing to forgive you, even you. Jesus is willing to cleanse you. It's impossible for your defilement to exceed God's grace and mercy. So today, cast yourself upon Jesus and his cross, and you will be cleansed. Amen.